When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Aramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm Tim Sylvie, the captain of this good ship Focus, and joining me from overseas are my trusty shipmates Alex Brundle and Sean Virtual Statman Kelly. Thank you, producer Johnny, for that wonderful bit of writing on the intro. Sean, I mentioned you're overseas. How's the jet lag? Do you even know what time zone you're in today? Um, I know it's still 2023, although I did disappear recently into an alternate universe where Red Bull were not the quickest car. <laughs> yes, weird that. We, a lot of us did. Strange. And uh, and Alex, what about you? I too am in Japan, where uh, theoretically a Grand Prix will occur. Uh, at least I hope it will, otherwise I've wasted a lot of time. Great stuff. And we've got the first in a trio of interviews with Aston Martin Performance Director Tom McCulloch in our Aramco Focus. Well, we may all be on different time zones, but it's time for us to synchronise watches and get into some serious F1 chat as we head into Focus number one. Winning at the slowest possible speed. That was the great Fangio modus operandi, and it's a good prelude to your performance focus, Alex. Tell us more. Sure is. It was also an Alan Prost uh, modus operandi, sort of that kind of uh, efficiency of movement. But I'd like to talk about paced races uh, for the reasons drivers made pace races, the reason teams made pace races and, and what are the pitfalls of doing so. It's a bit weird, isn't it? To, to consider driving at a slower than optimal speed in a racing car. So uh, I think it deserves a discussion as to why we may do so. Well, let's do that. Let's dive into the why. So the obvious question, I suppose, why are paced races part of the motorsport landscape, Alex? It doesn't sound like a particularly glamorous way to win a Grand Prix. Well, has anybody ever been, well, I'm sure they have, been followed by... Uh, a, a relative who drives generally quite slowly, but sort of seems to endlessly make progress. And actually, you've driven at a faster speed within the national speed limits of the nation in which you reside, of course, and you therefore have arrived and then been shocked by how quickly behind you the slow driver arrives. It's kind of the case in, in in racing, uh, th- there are diminishing returns to going faster and faster and faster and faster. Use of fuel, use of tyres, um, uh, uh, damage, issues. And so there is always that trade-off between how much of the vehicle and the efficiency that you're using, the number of laps that you have to do, and the uh, amount of speed that you can take through the corners. What we found in recent recent eras of motorsport is as we become more on top of racing machinery more on top of the cars more on top of the races we're getting closer to the precipice of 
of understanding where that trade-off lies, and we're kind of getting better at it. And we're not just talking about controlling tyre degradation or fuel, like you mentioned. It might be for very strategic racing reasons. And Carlos Sainz uh, did some impressive race control from the front in Singapore. What was he doing and why was he doing it? Well, they did two things, actually, Ferrari. Um, at the very beginning of the race, they uh, controlled the pace of the entire field. So they were lapping around 10 seconds at stages behind the pace that they had qualified on. Now, you lose time in the race, you fill the car up with fuel, you run on old tyres and so on and so forth, but it definitely isn't 10 seconds. The reason they were doing that is to conserve the temperature of the tyre. It was a temperature degradation race, meaning that if you overheat the tyre surface, you go backwards, but also to disallow any other competitors from undercutting them by pitting into a gap pushing and then passing them when they pit it. So they do that by stacking the field up behind them at equal gaps to prevent the other drivers and cars being able to pit into those gaps and then being able to make progress and overtake them. The more obvious and incredible and brave move that Carlos Sainz also did at the end of the race when the chips were down is back uh, himself into Lando Norris to deliver the one second window in which Lando Norris needed DRS in order to help Lando Norris, who did a very good job of it in the end, um, defend from George Russell, who he knew was faster. So incredible work, really, from Carlos Sainz and brave stuff to manage his own pace in the car twice to actually make sure that everything around him delivered the victory. There were very few laps in that race at all at which he needed to actually deliver the full pace of the car he did that in those laps managed the race for the rest yeah he he did a particularly good job there didn't he He, he, who in your eyes is a particular master of controlling their pace in formula one perhaps on the current grid but maybe even going back in time a little bit i expect sean might have a view on this too Drivers, we consider the tyre whisperer. I mean, we've seen Sergio Perez do it a good few times. We've seen Nico Hulkenberg manage a tyre beautifully to the end of the race. Your old hands tend to be the ones who can really, really do it and really understand it. In the same way, the younger drivers are incredible with the energy systems of the cars, uh, the management of the, the their uh, all of the uh, things that you could change within the car, diff settings, deployment, regeneration, etc. The old hands are, manage- uh, are masters of racecraft. I'm talking about drivers like Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton, etc. Um, and that's because they've seen so many scenarios play out in front of them that actually there's half a chance that they've seen a similar scenario before. And it is sheer experience. Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the first turbo era that we had in Grand Prix racing, so really from, it started in 77, but realistically started in 79, up until 1988. That was a great era for racecraft when you had to manage the overwhelming horsepower, the fact you didn't have enough fuel to get to the end, the fact that it would wear the brakes out, the fact that you often only had one set of tyres. Back then, pit stops weren't really much of a thing. Um, Alain Prost was always renowned for his racecraft, but also actually his teammate when um, in 1984 when he didn't win the title, Nicky Lauda, he lost the title to Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda won the world title that year without ever qualifying on the front row of the grid. It was never about uh, flat out qualifying pace. It was about the racecraft. It was about managing 
the pace to get to the end um, in ways that, that kind of went away in the 90s and the early 2000s because we had the refueling era and it was just go hell for leather, go as fast as you can. Um, but yeah, it was particularly notable. I think Alain Prost actually won as many races as he did because he was in the perfect era for, for him to exist. That was his, his, his great forte and the rules played to his advantage. I, t- I totally agree with you, Sean. Actually, I've had the fortune to drive the 1983 and the 1985 uh, Tolman Hart uh, Formula One cars. And there are two gauges on the steering wheel that are bigger than everything else and one control on the dashboard that's bigger than everything else. The two gauges are manifold pressure and fuel. And the control that's bigger than everything else is the boost pressure gauge, which tells you everything about the racing through that era. They were managing how much fuel they had left, how much um, how much boost pressure they were delivering, and so on and so forth. Very similar in turbo era sports cars. And there are several drivers um, who are, including Jonathan Palmer, actually, and I'm sure he'll forgive me for saying this, uh, who are notorious for jumping in cars, using up all of the boost allowance and the fuel. <laughs> so the teammate who got in after them didn't have any left and went backwards. <laughs> By the way, I should say this may not be the last time we discussed the first Turbo era in this particular episode. I'm saying nothing for now. <laughs> well, I suppose, Alex, there's no other way to race in Formula One. Like you said there, even going back in time, people are managing boost pressures, fuels and so on. It, it, there are so many different variables to manage and control. Is there ever an opportunity really to just put your foot down and go for it in an F1 race? I think there is, you know, I mean, there are there are certain circuits that really allow the drivers to do that. I'd like Baku as one, you know, you know, for example, circuits with a sort of a lower energy surface uh, where Pirelli might have bought um the kind of a slightly conservative tire and let's say you get uh, a safety car mid distance okay so you now are good on fuel because you've had a safety car to put you back on fuel you're not too worried about the tire because you can stick the hard on and go to the end of the race you're not going to overheat the tire really because you know the surface is low enough energy so actually then you get a good sort of 30 laps where they're absolutely flat out. Um, barring that, I mean, we all know, um, anybody who's interested enough in Formula One and the technicals of Formula One will know that every single car starts every single race without enough fuel to get to the end. And that's because the teams underfill them with the view that they're not going to use the full amount of fuel to so carry it at the start of the race. So that should give you a feel for just how much uh, just how much management there is going on. Uh, I had the privilege of chatting to a couple of technical directors um, through last weekend at Singapore and the amount of lift and coast and management that the drivers were being asked to do, even me, it shocked even me as a sports car driver who's driven, you know, 24 hour races on one set of brakes. So uh, that that shows you how much there is to on inside the car but there are a few moments where they're absolutely harry flatters yeah now let's look ahead to 2026 there are some rules and regulation changes coming the engines will be even more efficient um, there'll be more regeneration um could this lead to some problems are we going to see even more lift and coast down the straights? some drivers have already alluded to this is this going to be a problem come 2026 
Oh, there will be massively. There will be massively. Uh, and that's the issue with running more and more towards electrified racing. Um, and I think it was, I, I don't know who it was of Christian Horner and Max Verstappen who, who made the point that they'd thrown the 2026 engine set on their simulation. And actually, you get to the end of the straights at Monza and have to shift down a gear while you're flat out because the car won't pull. Now, uh, there's, of course, jockeying for position around what will benefit various teams in their development cycle and how they're putting their car together. So those things, those statements need to sometimes be taken with a pinch of salt. But as we move into a world where motorsport sort of, I'm not sure you can ever say there's entirely, you know, ecological, sustainable sport even, let alone motorsport, because the only truly... Uh, entirely um, non-environmentally uh, affecting way to do any sport is to not do it. As soon as you turn the lights on, you're using energy. Um, but as we move into making our point um, in motorsport as to how the rest of the automotive world might move and as a hotbed of development for the rest of the automotive world, using less energy to deliver the same stuff is a hot topic. So we're always going to move to the direction of more and more and more and more management, and it's going to become a bigger and bigger part of, of motorsport. Alex, what's been your experience of this? Um, are there championships out there where it allows you just to go hell for leather, no concerns about tyre degradation uh, or using up energy, where you can really just put the pedal to the metal? Totally. Totally, totally exists. IndyCars like that, most of IMSA's like that. Uh, uh, my anecdotally, NASCAR is is decently like that. I know there's a bit of saving to do uh, tire wise on the ovals. So yeah, it's it's I consider it an American way of racing. You get a harder tire compound and 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 you go for it. So that's that's happening all over the motorsport world. British touring cars is like that. So is you know, uh, V8, V8 supercars or supercars. Um, so it's it's really a, you know, it's something that kind of goes with that high-level world-class motorsport where you get a lot of uh, original equipment manufacturers, you know, car, car makers involved because when they're funding motorsport, they want to talk through the motorsport program. And so it's the... You know, it's your OEM manufacturers that are going to drive that agenda. Where you move away from that or you only have a couple of manufacturers involved uh, and where more of the racers pay for the racing, quite frankly, the racing, unsurprisingly, caters more to the races because <laughs> they're the customer. I mean, it's not, it's not so difficult to work out. Have, uh, should Formula One be taking some lessons then from some of these other race series like IndyCar, British Touring Car Championship and so on? Have we gone too far? I know we've got to take into account, you know, the development of these super efficient um, engines, but have we gone too far? Um, you see, uh, most of the... Uh, no, I don't think so, actually, because most of the uh, our audience who... Um, watch these races and 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 drivers are cruising quote unquote cruising in the race um they get the con they get the concept they get the idea in their mind that the drivers are driving are cruising in the way that they might cruise 
on the road when they weren't particularly going to try to max to try to minimize the time period of their journey that's not how you cruise in a race car you you cruising in a race car um it involves or, or or reducing your pace in a race car involves driving to the limit but just changing what those limits are so you will always drive in a way that uh, saves extra tire, saves extra brakes, saves extra fuel, and sometimes that is more skillful or as just as skillful as taking the car to the absolute limit. It just doesn't look so extreme. So, as a driver, I love watching pace managed races because it's genius. Some some of the things that the drivers do behind the steering wheel to still deliver reasonable speed while managing the resources are genius. So we've got to explain it better. Great stuff, Alex. It's easy from the outside to assume that F1 drivers are going flat out all the time, but clearly that's not always the best way to win a motor race, as Science and Ferrari so brilliantly proved back in Singapore. And remember, if you have a question or comment related to anything Alex has talked about on the show, you can drop us a line on social media using the hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Well, I began the weekend in Singapore by making a presentation for some of Red Bull's sponsors. And I think that they had settled into the idea that winning was a guaranteed thing every weekend. And I finished the presentation by outlining everything that's gone before 15 consecutive wins for Stappen winning 10 in a row doesn't mean anything for this weekend. You start from a clean sheet of paper and you have to execute everything and get everything right. And they felt like I was being a bit of a sort of a, a Debbie Downer, like that it wasn't going to make any difference. Everything's going to be great. And of course, what happened, Red Bull caught with their pants, pants down out in Q2, ended the winning streak and had one of the most incredibly mediocre weekends for an otherwise completely dominant team that we've ever seen. I mean, bear in mind, Verstappen had 10 in a row, He'd tied Michael Schumacher 15 consecutive top two finishes. They'd won every Grand Prix. And then they end up with both cars out in Q2. Not only is that the first time that's happened since 2018, but I look back in the record books. It was the first time it had happened purely involved with pace for 15 years to Red Bull. Not since the end of 2008 had they been so uncompetitive. So that has to be one of the oddest performances that we have ever seen from an otherwise dominant team in championship history. Now let's dissect that a little bit further. Um, what was it that led to Red Bull starting to see cars pass them in Singapore? It was so unusual to see a McLaren, a Mercedes um, and other cars passing the Red Bull. What on earth happened? Well, that's probably more a question for Alex than it is for myself. All I can do is, is, is say in hindsight that it, it stands among the list of uh, anomalous Grand Prix performances that we've seen. And in fact, um, in, in terms of a, you know, a title winning team being completely mediocre, that, there was actually another example um, in Singapore, and that was a few years ago, and that was the Mercedes team. So uh, they're in good company, at least. Uh, in that department. Mercedes actually, uh, back in 2015, when Lewis Hamilton uh, won his second consecutive world title, um, Mercedes had 12 1-2 finishes that season. 12 1-2 finishes. That's a record 
for a single season. They locked out the front row that season 15 times. 15 front row lockouts that year. And in Singapore that year, Hamilton qualified fifth, Rosberg qualified sixth, and they didn't finish on the podium. It was very, very, very similar to what Red Bull went through uh, in the Singapore Grand Prix this year. In fact, I even put it in the broadcaster notes for Saturday. I'd even said, hey, um, based on the data we're looking at on Friday, this looks very similar to Mercedes in 2015. And I, I don't know whether it's you know, s s too many Singapore slings. I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Alex can cast some insight. Is there something about that racetrack that lends itself to outlying performances? I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Uh, yeah, there is. It's weird. It's a very weird track. Well, what it is is a very weird track that doesn't look like a very weird track. You know, so I was going to ask you, actually, um, you know, if there are other racetracks that are so statistically anomalous. Um, but, you know, for example, Monaco is a weird track, but looks like a weird track. It's very slow, very short. You know, Monza, again, another weird track, looks like a weird track. It's very fast. There aren't many corners. The thing about Singapore is, and it, and it highlights... Well, I, actually, it doesn't highlight. It fails to highlight one specific area where dominant cars are excellent. Okay, so the dominant cars traditionally in an, in an era of motorsport we're in now have more downforce and more efficiency. So, um, and I was talking to Kevin Magnuson about this, who I thought drove brilliant at the weekend. Um, they tend, so when you have downforce and efficiency like that, it tends to benefit the car in combined load, where it's, accelerating and turning or braking and turning at the same time and bad cars or there are no bad cars on the formula one grid if you've got in any of them they'd rip your head off but uh, uh you know worse cars tend to do worse under combined load conditions now at singapore specifically there are a lot of bumps so you have to run the car quite high which means you can't run it down to the floor and get your big charge of downforce which means anybody who's found ride height with clever suspension can't use that there's also no real combined load moments on the lap you only go stop turn so those two things put together means cars generally run higher and don't have to exploit any combined load characteristics which gives non-dominant cars a go at dominant cars which is so interesting isn't it and i just can't think of another circuit like that on the flip side sometimes we get a pleasant little surprise and see a team suddenly show pace cue giancarlo fisichella in spa 2009 sean yeah that was weird in the exact opposite way conversely giancarlo fisichella had been bounced out of the renault team he was at force india um, in the, the early days of Force India when they were an absolute backmarker team. He'd spent a year and a half in the team. He'd got out of Q1 precisely two times in a year and a half with the team. We all rocked up at Spa in 2009 and there was no expectation whatsoever for Giancarlo Fisichella that weekend. And of course, what happens? He reaches Q3 and we're thinking, wow, where did that come from? He only got out of Q1 once all season up to now. And then he puts it on pole position. And we thought, wait, hang on a minute. What, what's happened here? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> as, as there must be a timing error. We genuinely thought there must be a timing error. That can't be right. But apparently it was right. And of course, he went into the race, finished second in the Grand Prix to Kimi Raikkonen, I think it was. Uh, and by the next race, 
um, he was actually in the Ferrari for the rest of the season. And it wasn't just Fisichella who was strange because Jarno Trulli's Toyota was second on the grid, which wasn't that anomalous. But uh, Nick Heifeld's BMW Sauber was third on the grid, which is the te their team's best performance of the year. Now, the cynics among us were suggesting that in this that it was in the middle of the global financial crisis and Bernie might have weaved a little bit of magic dust on the tyres that have been allocated to Force India, Toyota and BMW Sauber in a hope that these uh, companies would not all pull out of Formula One, maybe give them a little bit of special sauce for the weekend. Um, now, I must say there was no evidence to back that up, I hasten to add, but that didn't stop people suggesting it as a, as a concept. Uh, and if, if Bernie wanted that to happen, it didn't work because both Toyota and BMW pulled out at the end of the year. But it gave us a very, very strange weekend. Now, Ferrari have been up and down in the past few years, up in Singapore this year. But in Monza 1997, we saw what can happen when they have a bit of a downer. Tell us about that one. Yeah, well, that was the, the first year where... It was Michael Schumacher's second year at Ferrari. It was the first year where he had a shot at the championship. That first season in 1996, he won three Grand Prix. He was never going to be winning the World Championship. In 97, all of a sudden, uh, sooner than anticipated, Schumacher had them in with a chance of the World Championship. And it's probably fair to say when they got to Monza that the blip actually came from Schumacher rather than the whole team. Eddie Irvine had had some races like that. The car was actually quite difficult. Um, but Schumacher was able to drive around its problems in the, uh, the way that only Michael Schumacher ever could. Uh, but when they got to Monza, now normally we see Ferrari pull out something you know special for Monza. We, we saw it this year even. But in 1997, Michael Schumacher qualified uh, ninth on the grid in a Ferrari and only finished sixth in the race, which is a deeply disappointing performance for a car that's trying to win the world title. Bear in mind, Schumacher was leading the world championship and then they went to uh, the following race, the what was then called the A1 ring. It's now called the Red Bull ring. It was the first race on that layout. Uh, and, he, and he recorded the exact same result while his championship rival, Jacques Villeneuve, was winning the race. And that allowed Jacques Villeneuve back into contention. And even though Schumacher returned to his normal level of form after that, there was this very strange blip of a couple of weeks where Ferrari were completely mediocre. And it could be said that had that not happened, we wouldn't have had Jerez 97, you know, Schumacher driving into Villeneuve and all that. That would never have come to pass because Villeneuve uh, would have already lost the championship to Schumacher without those results. Let's go back a little bit further, Sean. You've got something on Johnny Herbert in 1994. Tell us all about that one. Yeah, now this one's a little bit personal because... Um, Johnny Herbert was in the Lotus uh, for several years. He, 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 he sort of picked up again with Lotus at, at the end of 1990 into 1991. And in 1994, they had what they thought was a, a killer engine deal with what was called Mugen Honda. But it was basically the Honda that had previously been in the McLarens. It was a few years old. But it was a lot of horsepower. So you're thinking, OK, they're going to be more competitive. It was terrible. I mean, he didn't qualify higher than 15th. In Hungary, he was 24th on the grid out of 20, uh, what, 28 cars that had entered. It was a terrible car. But uh, Mugen Honda came up with a brand new engine, which was much lighter and fitted the car a lot better. They put it in. Uh, it was great in testing. Herbert had the engine. Alex Zanardi did not have the engine at Monza. So only one Lotus had it. Herbert qualified fourth on the grid at Monza. And all of a sudden we're thinking, oh, Lotus are back. Wow, this is, a, this is the tonic that Johnny Herbert needed in his career. At the start of the race, Eddie Irvine ran into the back of him, spun him round, damaged the, the diffuser. There was a red flag. When they got the car back to the pits, they said, we're going to have to run the spare car. We can't fix it in time. The spare car had the old engine. Herbert, they, it blew up after like 10 laps. 
And then Herbert went to the next race with this new engine, qualified something like 20th. And it was never, ever as competitive as that again. It was super competitive at Monza in qualifying. Unfortunately, we never saw what happened in the race. And it could be said that that was the final nail in the coffin for Team Lotus, who went out, essentially went out of business, certainly went out of Formula One as a team at the end of 1994. 26 cars on the grid. That is a lot. Uh, off the top of your head, Sean, I'm going to test you here and put you on the spot. Can you tell us the most cars that have ever appeared on a Formula One grid? Um, I think it was the German Grand Prix of 52 or 53 sort of time. I can't remember the exact number, but it would have been, I think it would have been up in the 30s. If we discount the Indy 500s, of course. Um, I believe it was the, I believe it was as early, early 50s. Uh, German Grand Prix at the, at the Nordschleife when we had uh, a much higher obviously the Nordschleife a very long racetrack so there's a much more scope um, for the be to more cars on the grid um, but uh, okay at this point I'm actually going to look this up because I wanted to, <laughs> want to see how many cars were actually on the grid back then we had 32 cars on the grid in the 1952 German Grand Prix and let's have a look for 53 it was 34 cars on the grid in 53 I think that's the highest number off the top of my head um, answers on a postcard, if you know better. Then there's the downright odd. Nelson Piquet, the original one, going from Detroit, then on to Canada, with drastically different results, Sean. I promised you we hadn't finished talking about the first Turbo era, and here comes one of the strangest stats in World Championship history. Nelson Piquet, the reigning world champion in 1982. Bernie Ecclestone and the Brabham team were getting to grips with their new turbo BMW engine. Up to then, they'd use the Ford Codsworth, the trusty Ford DFE. What could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is the turbo guys had 150 horsepower more. So they were trying to work with BMW making a turbo, but it wasn't going very well. And in fact, it reached its really low point, the nadir of the whole thing in Detroit. Nelson Piquet, the reigning world champion, failed to qualify with his turbocharged Brabham BMW. Now, at that stage, Brabham and Bernie Ecclestone were thinking of just ditching the BMW and going back to Ford um, for the time being. And I think BMW had said, if they do that, we're cancelling the whole deal. So um, my, 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 the timeline sketchy in my head. I probably should have done more research before I came on the air. But um, what happened was there was a compromise where they ran one BMW car and one Ford Cosworth car. So Ricardo Patrese had the Ford Cosworth car. Now, the next week in Montreal, what happens Nelson Piquet goes from non-qualification one week for Detroit to winning the race for Brabham BMW in Montreal, BMW's first Grand Prix victory. And furthermore, and this is the bit that's really weird, his teammate Ricardo Patrese finished second. And that means that Brabham achieved the distinction of being a team finishing, recording a 1-2 finish in the same race with two different engine suppliers. How weird is that? I believe that engine uh, to just to, uh, just to add background that is incredibly weird but i believe that engine just to add background is still part of a debate to this day between renault and bmw as to who produced the most powerful turbo era engine and the reason why it continues to be a debate and i was having a chat with uh, some people in the know at classic team lotus about this who can who who uh, are are the care holders of some of those turbo era Renault um, Lotus cars, um, and the reason why it continues to a debate is they broke those two engines both broke every single dyno they ever put them on. 
<laughs> so nobody actually knows how much power they really produced. And we can probably throw Honda in as well, just for just for fun, because I, as I understand it, the 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 um the needle on the dynamometer for Honda only went up to one thousand horsepower, and they said they hit that some at some point in early nineteen eighty five they hit that, and after that they never knew exactly how much horsepower the car was getting. Sean, give us a couple more quick fire, very good and very bad. Well, back in nineteen seventy nine, Ligier would seem to be the fastest team uh, at the beginning of the season. Jacques Lafitte won the first couple of races in nineteen seventy nine. Well, then mysteriously never won another race all year and Ferrari and Jody Schechter won the championships and this is a great old wives tale which I don't know if it's true or not that Gerard Ducarouge had the optimum setup of that Ligier written on his cigarette packet which he then lost on his way back from Argentina and Brazil the first couple of races and they were never able to get it right again after that. I would love to think that that is a true story I'm not entirely certain Um, and also one of the greatest cars in history, the Lotus 72. It won 20 Grand Prix, I think, uh, in its time, in its various specifications. When it made its debut at Harama in 1970, the drivers, Jochen Rint and John Miles, didn't like the car at all. It just wasn't working for them. And so much so that Colin Chapman basically withdrew the car and they went back to the Lotus 49 for the Monaco Grand Prix. Now, that was the race famously that Jochen Rint won it by passing Jack Brabham at the last corner of the last lap when Jack Brabham slid into the, into the hay bales. Um, uh, so Jochen Rint won that race. The 72 then came back and Jochen drove it in C specification. So they'd already gone from the A specification through B specification into C specification. And then he reeled off four consecutive races before, of course, um, he, his fatal accident made him the first posthumous champion after Monza. But the Lotus 72 actually could have been an absolute disaster if they just pulled it and never gone back to it. it would, everyone would have said it was a very, very... Um, big failure. And just uh, to tag that, if you want to get really nerdy about it, the idea of having the side pods, the radiators on the side of the car, had previously been seen in the early 1960s when Keith Green used it in the Aintree 200, and I think in like 1962. And that withdrew, that was withdrawn after one race as well, because people said, this doesn't work, this is a stupid concept. Only Colin Chapman could go back to it and go, hmm, you know what? I reckon there might be more to this. Maybe Formula One cars would be very different looking if Colin Chapman had not been so stubborn about it. Well, Formula One cars would be very different looking without Colin Chapman generally. Um, it, it's my understanding they basically, well, cer- certainly the Lotus guys will tell you they basically invented ground effect uh, from 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 that concept and twin twin chassis they tried. That 72, I have seen it in E-specification and what a thing it really is. Uh, absolutely brilliant car. Absolutely gorgeous. Excellent stuff. Thank you, Sean. It just goes to show that even the best can have a day off from time to time, proving once again the fine margins in this sport. Right, it's now time for our Aramco Focus, and this time we're kicking off a trio of interviews with Aston Martin Performance Director Tom McCullough. Have you ever wondered how F1 teams go about extracting performance from their cars? Well, wonder no more, as Tom gives us an exclusive insight. Tom, thanks for joining us. Now, F1 is all about performance, but even if you have a good car, how do teams like Aston Martin go about extracting the maximum from it? Hi, Tim. That's a really good question. Um, We spend a lot of our time asking ourselves the same question. Uh, We obviously have a set of regulations that we're all working to and it's about exploiting those regulations to uh, extract as much performance out of the car as possible. 
Um, a lot of the performance, so the performance differentiator, is a large part of it is the aerodynamics. So that's a key part that we're um, working on developing, facilitating, helping. But we have to exploit the regulations in every aspect um, to, to have a fast car. So we are looking at um, all areas of the car that can add performance. We're looking at um, always developing the structure, the people, to get the most out of the people to understand uh, the same common goal of how to get the most out of the performance. Now, as the teams have grown, you know, we have grown a lot in the last two or three years, um, making sure that we're using our resource as efficiently as possible, getting the most out of our people, giving them the best tools to be able to do the best job, uh, but never forgetting that um, common goal. And it, it is challenging because we can spend hours, we can spend days, we can spend weeks and months on projects that are interesting, fascinating, but do they actually make the car go faster? That's the key. And um, so uh, as part of the leadership of a technical function, it's about guiding the, you know, the people to make sure that we are developing the car um, to be as performant as possible. And there's a huge amount of preparation that goes into developing a car and extracting that performance. Does the preparation start long before getting to the racetrack? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, obviously, they, if we just talk about a race weekend preparation, um, uh, once the car's been designed, once the car's been developed, um, there's a lot of preparation and simulation work. Um, you no, know, it's co in combination with big picture understanding. You know, you know when you go to certain circuits, these are the challenges. So we tend to be very data driven with a lot of our understanding of the tracks. We try to categorize the tracks. You know, what is the low speed, medium speed, high speed content? What is the power limited versus grip limited content? Therefore, the efficiency. Um, you know, how do we think the tyres are going to work? What's the optimum um, aerodynamic setup for the car? The optimum mechanical setup for the car? Um, and obviously the aerodynamics, the tyres and the mechanical setup are intrinsically linked. Um, and, you know, the characteristics of the circuits are key. There's no point turning up to Baku with a Monaco setup on the car. So we use a lot of simulation tools to help us. And um, we obviously have a state-of-the-art simulator, which the drivers um, and both our drivers, Fernando and Lance, come and do a lot of driving of that. That helps us, it helps the engineers, it helps build the picture for them, build the picture for us. And when I say for us, there's a lot of people involved in getting the most out of a race weekend, um, just on the technical side, never mind uh, the operational side. And on the technical side, we have um, 50, 60 people at the factory supporting the engineering team at the track, whether that's the aerodynamic understanding of the car, the tyre understanding, the reliability, the um, vehicle dynamics side, the uh, electronics control side. Um, you know, it goes on and on and on. And again, a bit like your earlier question, it's about making sure that the order one items we do well and that the common goal um, is, is achieved and it's uh, it is challenging that's part of our job to make sure that the the race engineers and the driver are doing the right thing have the right information and what about when you're at the circuit in the midst of a race weekend what does the performance extraction process look like there obviously we have different challenges at race weekends between uh, the sprint event format and the standard race weekend format for sure from an engineering side the standard race weekend is is a lot easier three practice sessions um, to to be able to fine tune the car both from a 
uh, a low fuel qualifying performance side and crucially from the high fuel long run um, performance side as well. So we're always, we have such little testing nowadays. So we're often doing a lot of testing at free practice one. That's nearly always for more future car development and performance, whether it's aerodynamic rates or a new mechanical system on the car or a new way of using the tires. Um, so we tend to use free practice one on the tracks, dirty, not as um, useful uh, to understand about the race week and to gather data. And we're very, very data driven. Understanding the actual car on track is key to us extracting the most out of the car the weekend, but it's also key to us developing the car. And um, so free practice one really for me is a test session. Um, gathering all that data, getting a bit of a baseline understanding of the balance and uh, the setup needed for that weekend. Free practice two, um, the most significant of the practice sessions because it's often uh, the track temperature, the conditions, um, also the tracks improved a bit because it's been used, uh, very similar to qualifying in the race. Um, so we tend to do some performance running and some high fuel running. When we go run the car, the first thing we do is correlate um, that data to our expectation. So we've done endless simulations um, to understand uh, all the main areas of the car. When we go run the car, you know, does it do what we're expecting? Are the drivers got the confidence, the stability, the balance, the performance, that, that characteristic of track? Is, is it correct? You know, and then you know, fine tune during the session. But it's only an hour long session now. We used to have hour and a half sessions, which were. A lot easier from an engineering side. Well, now it's bang, bang, bang. The minute you have a yellow flag or a red flag, now often get the end of a Friday one-hour session. I think I've got a lot of data there, you know. So they're the times you're really relying on your simulation tools. But when we start working um, at the end of free practice two, we we come off the pit wall. We go back into the office. It's like the second day starts. You know, we're debriefing. We're understanding. We're having a lot of meetings with people back at the factory. Now we have the operational curfew now, so at one point we have to stop working at the track, but that doesn't mean the work stops for all the people back at the factory. Unfortunately for them, um, they're often crunching the numbers, um, and when we turn up free practice prior to free practice three on a Saturday morning, um, we again have meetings going through all the analysis, all the understanding on how we then attack the rest of the weekend. That was Tom McCullough, Performance Director of the Aston Martin F1 team, and we'll have more from him on the next episode. Well, that's about it for this episode, but we'll be back with you again soon for more stats, more performance insights, and more F1 chat. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow, or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you very much. I certainly will, and it's going to be uh, good fun regarding another Grand Prix. And Sean, same to you. You must have enough air miles now to never have to pay for a flight ever again. Well, the good news is, is that at least I've done all my planning for this year, so I won't have to pay for another plane flight this year. Fingers crossed. Terrific stuff. Well, thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sean. Bye for now. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.